perception of contradictory information, and the resulting confusion and anxiety from the difficulty to resolve those contradictions. We are here to play in that realm of contradiction and cognitive dissonance. We are here to infect your mind. So you said you were looking right. at attachment stuff. What, what do you mean by attachment stuff? Yeah, there's, it's kind of an old theory, but it's still kind of relevant today. And the idea of the attachment theory was this is how a parent parents their baby to develop them into like a normal person when they grow up versus like a crazy person who gets divorced seven times and like, you know, has all these uh, social issues. And there's four different types. And there's a lot of evidence that it's pretty easy to develop like the good type, which is secure attachment. Um, it's just like what you need to do. And everyone's a little different. So I spent most of my time looking at that stuff to kind of refamiliarize myself because it is not something I pay attention to um, in my day to day. No, but that to some degree, that is something that I do think about from time to time is by definition attachment to things sets us up for emotional distress nothing's permanent if we attach ourselves to something we apply emotional valence to that thing and so any change in that relationship is going to cause distress. It's going to cause disorder. Well, the like secure attachment style, the idea is that if the mom puts the baby in a room and leaves, the baby is pretty sure that she will come back if I cry and she will come back when I need something and she'll come back in general. So they're not freaked out by being left alone in a room. And a baby that doesn't have secure attachment will either flip out or do nothing or act really strangely, like do like repetitive movements because they cannot trust that their needs will be met by their mother, which is the like insecure attachment. So there are as a baby, like the ones that like turn out, the only studies I've seen look at like three-year-olds. So I've never seen a study that looks at attachment style from birth all the way to adulthood, um, just because the logistics of that are pretty unethical <laughs> um like saying like you have an insecure attachment so i'm going to find out if you know you end up a criminal or whatever um there's just no way to do it where you can do it like double blind in that way um and then you can't really do studies of kids for 18 years cuz you lose all of them or they move or they withdraw consent and um so the logistics of that are difficult but they can get about a year usually out of these studies and they find that the Secure attached infants have better outcomes as a two-year-old than they did as a one-year-old. So who's to say? Yeah, well, a couple things about that. Um, first of all, I assume that secure attachment as a metric for stable adulthood is because that individual has practiced healthy regulation and coping skills mm -hmm. right because 
it's really easy to slip into a an anxiety attack with something like that, right? Because literally anything could happen. Um, I ask my students this from time to time just to get them to think too much. Um, you know, if we were in a room, all of the windows closed or no windows at all, all of the doors closed and sealed, no cell phones, no communication into or out of the room. There's no way to see in or out or, right? Without opening doors and without going in and out of the room, how can you prove to me that anything outside of that room exists? You can't. You have to interact with what's outside of the room in order to demonstrate that what's outside of the room exists. You can have the memory of like coming into the room or whatever, but you can't prove to me that that memory is anything more than a memory without going out and interacting with the thing. So I can see from like the child's perspective in those studies that once mom leaves the room and the door closes, literally anything could be happening to her. She could be an angel spirit floating away. She could dissolve into nothingness. Like who knows, right? So as long as you can emotionally regulate um, enough to quell those, then I see that that's healthy. The second thing that, that made me think about was the way you described that was a very clear, like, resolving conflict in, like, in Erickson's psychosocial development stage, right, for the, for the really young. Um, and it, it, it got me thinking, I wonder if one could find an underlying thread between all of Erickson's stages of psychosocial development dealing with attachment in some way, shape, or form. I'm sure, um, but I think people really overcomplicate the attachment styles because today, if you find someone who's interested in attachment styles, it is treated almost the same as astrology where they're like, where were you born? Or like, I can tell that you're this because you did that one thing. And um, so it is fully gone into like pseudoscience, like, you know, the Myers-Briggs personality types that mean nothing for what you, you know, how you behave and how successful you are. And um, so it's, I would be dubious of going too much into it because the bottom line of the attachment research is that the only thing you have to do to build a secure attachment with an infant is to hold them have this as an example hold them like this until they stop crying and that is the only thing that they found across like every single study that this is the thing that and they're all looking at mothers but any caregiver holding them like this if you put them down while they're still crying that could build insecure attachment if you don't ever pick them up. If you hold them like this when they're crying, that could do secure, make an insecure attachment. Um, and so, like, that's all it takes, which is what every mom already does, um, but apparently not all of them. So the there's lots of other things you can do, like, you know, having the bottle when they're hungry and, you know, making sure that they're warm and not cold, because, like, when that level of neglect can definitely lead to, like, insecure attachment. But meeting all of their basic needs and then holding them until they are quiet or asleep or whatever is it. And like, in a way that's good news because it's not rocket science to raise like a normal kid. Um, 
it's like, okay, just a couple of things that is kind of your basic instinct already. Um, and then it does get more complicated when you look at like specific groups. So like low socioeconomic status versus high versus different races, you see slightly different parenting techniques, but that's the one thing they all have in common is holding the baby to their chest and not putting it down too early. Yeah. I wonder if, that seems to work in the majority of cases because we as a species have evolved that as a human universal mm -hmm. right now I, I don't want to put the cart before the horse i'm not trying to say whether it works because we've evolved that way or we've evolved that way because it works order matters. And, and I think those are two different statements and I'm not sure which one would take prevalence there, but I do think that the, that there is that relation now further. Is that a sort of human universal because it simulates skin to skin oxytocin release? So that's a great question. And I would go so far as to say this is a mammal universal. All mammals do this. All mammals cuddle their babies. Um, like you see this with the Harlow monkey experiment where he, you know, ruined a bunch of monkeys growing up because he didn't give them yeah. a real mother and they went to their cloth mother. So the wire mother versus cloth mother experiment. Um, and they found that that comfort was the thing that they wanted, not just that this is the mother that feeds me. I'm not going to cuddle it because it's not comfortable. Um, so I think it's even deep, like farther down our evolution than that. So before humans. Um, and then the, like, they've looked at genetic components and I don't know how they do this. This is beyond me, but they can tell like what type of neurochemicals you're particularly sensitive to um, based on your genetics. And there has not been anything that says for sure that's the thing that's why this matters um and that's not because that's not it's just because you know they haven't found it who knows um so it could definitely be that people have looked at that um, um i'm scrolling through one of the articles i pulled up for that exact part well because the, the reason it makes me think about it is because mm -hmm. oxytocin is the neurochemical that simulates or i should say stimulates um, feelings of stability and security, connection and attachment, right? Uh, yeah, this just says uh, 2022 article, um, mothers who showed high sensitivity to their infants, meaning when they interact with their baby, they have a lot of oxytocin, were more likely to have a securely attached child. Um, so there's a link between the mothers, but I don't think they know about why it works for the baby, but so the mother gets joy from interacting with their baby. So they do it more and then the child is uh, securely attached. So from the adult side, that appears to be the case. Um, who knows why it makes a baby grow up differently? Well, I would have to imagine then that. Those are the conditions that all other things equal creates the neurophysiological foundation 
to have that framework to have higher levels of oxytocin when you're in parenting mode right mm -hmm. because that that's that's the whole goal of evolution it's not just get your genes to the next generation it's help foster the next generation to pass their genes on again if you can if if you have a, a series of traits that adds benefits over an intergenerational link then you know studies have shown over time those genes become the dominant genes it's not just from mm -hmm. one generation to the next it has to be intergenerational um and we do know that human beings are receptive to all kinds of olfactory chemical ocular signals that we're not aware of, right? A like 2% change in skin tone can make a difference in somebody's mood in the group, right? Um, pheromones have a big thing. We can smell hormones on each other, even though we're not aware that we can consciously right all of those things play a factor so if heightened oxytocin levels in mothers foster the behavior that creates more stable children i would not i wouldn't hesitate much to assert that that creates a that creates an effect of having the child's brain do the same things. Yeah. Well, it, I guess it would be inferred that that works. I don't know anything. I'm realizing I have no idea how babies' brains work differently from adults. Because, like, from children, it's basically the same oxytocin equals. But I have no idea if their brain chemistry is different. Um, so I was just about to say something, which would be... I have no frame of reference. I assume it's the same, but well, it could what, be completely different. I was just going to say like something just completely out mass. Like, well, I'm sure like oxytocin works for the mother. So it would work for the baby, but you know, like babies can't see anything because their brain isn't developed enough to yeah. like have clear vision. So I have no idea what that could possibly do. And well, does, it's also known like that babies that are addicted to drugs, meaning they would have a lot of oxytocin being yeah. released in their neurons have very 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 bad outcomes behaviorally um intellectually just socially like it causes a lot you know you should never do drugs while pregnant you also shouldn't do drugs while parenting because it's going to interfere with that oxytocin which is the reason you get up at 2 a.m for you know for three years in a row um, yeah uh, it's it's basically a zombie phase uh, <laughs> yeah so if you start doing drugs you will not take care of your baby anymore <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't have an answer for I don't even have a speculation for how the important neurochemicals that we typically associate with psychological health might differ in efficacy and quantity between infants, children, adolescents and adults. Um presumably I it do... is different because the if I were to like smoke mask right now by next week i could be completely back to normal if a baby smokes meth one time like that could ruin their development um and put their life on a completely different trajectory than it was on so presumably it does have a much greater effect now is that due to underdeveloped brain areas 
right? Because we know that the frontal lobe and prefrontal cortex, especially, don't even start their significant maturation and development until adolescence and then finalize in early adulthood, right? Um, mm -hmm. That's why babies struggle with executive function. That's why the terrible twos are a thing because object permanence is just starting to be realized and they're not able to self-regulate or any of the Why they think their teachers sleep at school. Yeah. Um, like you have a house? But I wonder if it has something else to do with neuroplasticity, mm -hmm. right? So if we look at it from the other direction, um, Roland Griffiths, the um, psychologist at Harvard, not Harvard, Johns Hopkins, that runs the uh, psychometrics lab, he's shown through his application of psilocybin the the hallucinogenic chemical in mushrooms and ptsd patients that a single i don't know a high dose um in a controlled environment could have anywhere from like nine to 18 months of positive effect mm -hmm. right and so thinking that through what he realized is that or the hypothesis that he's generated is that um because part of what hallucinogenics do is shatter cognitive frameworks right our um abstract neural architecture for how we make meaning in the world what that means then is under supervised conditions a healthy dose of hallucinogenic drugs induces a higher neuroplasticity which allows the patient's attachment that caused that ptsd right the um rigid self-defense frameworks that are built up around that source of trauma become more loud noise equals danger loud noise yeah, equals and, danger and by inducing that plasticity by inducing malleability in those cognitive frameworks they can form in different ways and resolve right the loud same noise way that, equals cool yeah the, the same way that um a stroke victim's brain can rewire in order to learn how to redo tasks using different neural pathways mm -hmm. right um now, what that implies is, and I, I think this is really cool, um, the way to be more psychologically healthy and younger is to, I think I said that wrong, the way to be more psychologically healthy as we get older is to induce the levels of plasticity that we had when we were younger. Mm -hmm. Right. So think of a group of like eight or nine year olds out on the playground. The world is anything they want it to be. Right. They're not rigid in their frameworks. They have organic malleability with how they interact with reality and each other. And as we get older, we have our, through a series of social and individual and personal conditioning, we have our increasingly rigid architectures for how we relate to other people in the world. Mm -hmm. And those, by definition, constrain how we handle stressors. 
Over time, the more constrained we are in how we handle stressors, the less adaptive we can be to the infinite amount of possibility of stressors that we can run into in the world. Right. So the more plasticity you can have, the more adaptive you can be to the myriad of potential threats or potential stressors or anxieties that you are inevitably going to run into. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing or not the same thing, but it's similar with like going in a K hole can cure treatment resistant depression. That makes no sense. And it makes no sense that tripping would solve anything. But when you think of like, if I click my pen, I tell my thumb like what to do. This is a twisty pen. So I tell both my thumbs what to do. And I use the same pathway to do that every single time because it knows how to reach my thumbs very quickly. There's no reason any other part of my brain should light up in order to do this task. And so it doesn't. And then when you take a hallucinogen, there's a pretty good chance, it's not for sure, but that when I tell myself to click this pen, to twist my pen, that some other neurons are going to join in, or you might even get completely new neurons to do it. And then that's the moment where that new pathway can start and you have that plasticity again. And that was something that I kind of had to learn. It That feels like a discovery like kind of since I grew up through academics was that um, adults have no neuroplasticity or a little bit of neuroplasticity and children have a lot. And we're finding more and more that adults have a lot of neuroplasticity as we get better at like treating trauma and people who have half their brain removed for seizures or people who have half their brain removed through a trauma. Um, we can just take off their skull, scoop the bad parts out, put their skull back on and then give them enough physical therapy and enough practice that they'll start to build new pathways to do the same things that they did before. And it's never the same. It never feels the same. They're never back to 100%. There's always that loss um, because it's a brand new pathway. It feels different. Um, so all that to say, I think, I don't know if it induces the plasticity. I think that's innate. We already have that. And then it's just giving your brain an opportunity to make that new pathway because your neurons would typically just stay asleep. And that's kind of a chicken or the egg. Like our neurons can make new pathways. How do we make them do that? And if we can't make them do that, then they don't have neuroplasticity. So this would come down to a definition, I think. Well, and, and so, that's, never mind. I agree. <laughs> that's that's a catch twenty two in some mm -hmm. sense. So first of all, um, I'm not entirely sure that I'm saying that it would induce new neuroplasticity, at least compared to what your brain might already be capable of. Mm -hmm. More so than it actually just breaks down the barriers that limit that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and well, that's why, like, I'm thinking like a gigantic chunk of our brain is dedicated to processing visual stimuli, which is why, like, you know, the reported like what happens when you trip is like you stare at your hand, you stare at your hand for half an hour, and it's the coolest thing ever. And it's the same visual stimuli that you've had around you. You know, you're in your bedroom or whatever. I personally have never tripped, so I'm just talking from other people's experience. But um, so you're in your exact same environment, but you're processing those visual stimuli through new pathways, through multiple pathways at a time, and your whole brain is lit up to 
sort of enjoy this just visual feast that you're getting. Um, so. Well, which is, all, which is yeah. fascinating because what that means is And I, we've we've said it multiple times, but I just feel like I need to belabor this point a little bit. What it means is if you're while you're having those hallucinations, whatever form they might take, it's not that those hallucinations aren't real. It's that that what that is what it feels like to use those other parts of your brain to do that task. Mm-hmm. which is wild to me right well um, it's that idea that like every person like this is something that I always like in high school was like a fun conversation but like I'll show you my yellow teapot my eye interprets this as yellow but you might actually be seeing green but we both learned that the name of this is yellow right and so like there's no way to really tell that all that the visual stimuli that we're getting is equal So I see brown as a dark color, and that's how I was taught to verbally communicate what I'm seeing. But we've all been taught that level of, um, so what I'm trying to say is our brains could be processing the colors in the same way that other people see them. Or, you know, there's nothing new that's gotten there. You're just able, I'm doing it the same way you're doing it now. And it's crazy to me because my yellow teapot is now kaleidoscope. And that's how you've been seeing it all along. And um, so it gives it lends that possibility that our brains are functioning in completely different ways, but we've been taught to verbally communicate those ways in the same way. And then we can tell them what the difference actually was. Yeah. But, um, at least with the color thing, we do have an objective measurement with which to determine a quote unquote standard. Mm -hmm. Right. So while I might see that yellow teapot as a different color, or I might have been socially taught that it's a different color, whichever might be the case, um, we can still measure the specific wavelength of light that's being reflected off of that object that we, that is hitting our retinas that we're perceiving, right? Mm -hmm. Now, how we process that information is a different question, which is why I was, um, I tutor a couple of my um, students that are also taking the AP psychology course this semester, and we're talking about um, disorders right now, clinical disorders. Um, Yay, psychopathology. Right, and I enjoy having those conversations, A, because I'm experienced and I've had a foothold either with or around basically everything they've talked about and b because that's exactly what we're describing to some degree is neurodivergence right Mm -hmm. your brain processes information differently than mine does by virtue of you being a different person and having a different set of neurochemical and psychosocial origins right i think it's it's both of those two together um and so like it's kind of like what we what we our conversation about ADHD i think to some degree everybody has ADHD the question is do you land far enough down the spectrum of symptoms that it's creates social impairment mm-hmm. right 
um, there is a mathematical average of human experience, but we all bell curve style fall along a spectrum of that average, right? Um, I did, okay. when we were talking about hallucinations, my instinct was to bring up schizophrenia and be like, that's different. <laughs> I have no idea. Because I do a lot of research on schizophrenia because a lot of my clients have it. And I, nothing has ever been like a light bulb. Like, oh, that makes sense. Because like with anxiety, fight or flight, that makes sense. We get where that comes from. Um, depression, like the lack of stimulation for your brain, that makes sense. ADHD, the processing, being able to turn your little attention flashlight, that makes sense. Schizophrenia, mm. <laughs> Well, and so is, it's just something that doesn't fit in. It should be its own, like there should be psychology and then it should be its own, like we need people on this because <laughs> we've solved, we've cured a lot of different mental illnesses, but that one. Well, and cause that, oh. that's something that is borderline terrifying if you think about it too long, right? How, and I ask this of my students probably more times than I should. Hell, I ask this of my own kids sometimes too. How can you convince me that I'm real? Like, that's a big issue, right? <laughs> In an when, emergency, yeah, I no when, longer when, believe it. When you have an inability to, it, it's like spatial disorientation, spatial disorientation of the mind, right? Mm -hmm. So spatial, spatial D is um, an aviation term for when you're flying through clouds or something like that, and you have no visual vestibular, meaning your inner ear or proprioceptive, meaning like G-force on your body, sensory information to make an accurate judgment call on whether you're sitting up, sitting down, sitting back, going forward, going backwards. You have no way to orient yourself in space at all um, because you don't know what's real. Right, you have no authentic cues to use to orient yourself. I have to imagine it's the same thing with schizophrenia, that inability to determine reality from non-reality to such a degree that like it's utterly crippling. Even that symptom, I think combined with there's a general level of confusion that is why these people can be particularly hard to work with because they might not understand why you're there, what you're doing. If you take them to a grocery store and ask them to get cereal, um, like, okay, I'm going to get cereal. And then they turn around and immediately, uh, cereal, so I better go find a captain to talk to because they're thinking of Captain Crunch, but their brain cannot quite get that they want mm -hmm. Captain Crunch. So now they're walking to a dock or they're trying to find the ocean. And like, so that's one where like, there is a clear line. Often there is no clear line. Like no matter what you did, you could not follow their thought process to where they end up. But that makes treatment especially difficult because a depressed person does not get confused about treatment or why they're sick or why they feel this way, unless they actually do have psychosis, which can happen. But um, so there's that just that that extra level of disability it'd be like trying to have like teach a dementia patient like how to do their own insulin like this person's going to die of their diabetes because they can't remember and it's the same thing with schizophrenia they need to take their meds they need to be aware of their hallucinations and how to react to them and to call someone when they start to feel sick again and 
sometimes you just can't because your brain is just doing its own thing. And it makes it, so to me, that's the scary part. If, cause you, there is a, there's a name for the symptom where you don't think you have schizophrenia. You've been told there's a part where you accepted your diagnosis. And then all of a sudden that part is gone. You no longer remember it. These people are aliens. I'm not taking my meds. You guys are the government. And it I'm can not flip. paranoid. They're just out to get me. Yeah. And that can flip at any time. Um, so someone who's been like perfectly healthy managing for 20 years, it can just flip. And, um, and like, technically it's just called a relapse. Um, but it never really goes away. It can just happen at any time. So for me, like someone who has hallucinations or because um, there's people who've had like strokes who have visual hallucinations 24 seven, but they don't have that confusion so they can manage them. And that's fine. Even if their computer starts floating off into space and they're seeing rainbows and stars and um, they're still able to walk around their house, go to the grocery store, remember what they need, unless that's been impaired by the stroke too. Um, but you get what I'm saying. Like you can yeah, manage but, hallucinations, but, but being confused about it is the issue. Yeah, because they're able to orient themselves enough to differentiate between what is real and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And if and, you can't do that, that's right. when there's trouble. It It is that threshold. Um, Yeah, let's um, let's take a break. We only got like three minutes left, and like that was really hot and heavy. Um, and then when we come back, I'd like to do two things, um, because we do kind of have to talk about social psychology, I guess, because this is part three. Um, I brought a parlor. <laughs> parenting and social roles, mm-hmm. and then um, conversation that I had with my one of my students today about um, the infinite variations of you that exist and how we are, we're not a single entity, we're a multiplicity of entities. So I was thinking a lot recently. Um, well, let me, let me start here. I discovered a guy whose name escapes me right now that is doing research on world population decline. Mm -hmm. Which I know seems counterintuitive because we just crossed the 8 billion threshold not too long ago. Um, But throughout a majority of the planet, birth rates are falling below replacement rates. Right. And I was listening to a couple podcasts with him where he was discussing his discovery of this. And the research that he did on it and the implications that that has for a whole bunch of different things, which are a different topic that we're not going to go into here, but it got me thinking about parenting and some of the some of the fundamental changes that a person goes through crossing that threshold and I connected that with our social psychology topic in, in the sense of social roles but not just in the sense of like we've socially constructed this set of parameters that everyone expects you to adhere to type of thing 
rather it might be some of that um but also the fundamental metaphysical changes the ontological changes that happen when at a variety of different stages in our life we go through these fundamental changes becoming a parent is one of those losing a parent is another one of those right where you go through an irreversible event that fundamentally and permanently changes the way you relate to the world, right? So your ontology changes, your fundamental nature of being changes, right? It's the same, same idea of being ordained as a minister in the Catholic Church, right? There's this understood ontological change that you are not fundamentally the same person that you were before the event, right? And how... to borrow a line of reasoning from the Stoic philosophers that without those I don't I don't I don't know what to call them without those just call them major life events as a placeholder for now um without those major life events we are never placed in a position where we have to become something more right so by that i'm i'm thinking or my thought process behind that is once you have a child and you are in that position, only then are you capable of seeing the requisites for the person that you need to become to fulfill that role. Mm -hmm before crossing that threshold there's no way to there, there's not even a way to categorize it in order to to see that so like um a kind of cheeky way to explain that is in, in and i talk about my students this way if if we don't ever have expectations for our students then they have no idea what size shoe they're expected to fill or trying to fill so how are they ever supposed to be able to fill that shoe mm -hmm. if, if that makes sense um and i think it is that it is precisely the fundamental and irreversible change in how we relate to the world irrespective of social pressures that creates the preconditions for us to have a goal to grow into right kind of like um kind of like a more fundamental version of Jung's archetypes mm -hmm. right that until we can define that archetype then there's no way that we can 
develop the behavior, skills, coping mechanisms, attachments, whatever necessary to embody that archetype? To me, follow-up question. So the environment, to me, there's three factors here. Environment, what you do in that environment, and then how you think. And the first thing that has to happen is that environment change. The baby is born. The baby is brought to your door from the adoption agency. The baby is there. That's number one. Behavior and mindset thinking can't change until that environmental change. And it sounds like for you, the thinking changes, then the behavior changes. Versus the baby's here, my behavior changes, and now my thinking changes as well. Yeah, but I don't think most people are consciously aware. And and I and I'm not saying that isn't like I'm spe some special breed of person that is consciously aware, like I have some special knowledge or sight or gnosis or anything like that. Um, but what I mean by that is I think a lot of that is more intuitive than explicit, right? Where right. Right, and you know, almost, almost. So probably that. My interpretation of that is probably the behavior changes, and then you start to think how you're behaving. I'm picking up the baby. I'm comforting it. I am a comforter. Right. What? Which? I mean, to some degree, we know that that's how. conscious behavior works that we engage in behavior and we rationalize that behavior post hoc sometimes well, in, in I, I think more often than not right so there's yeah, also there's... That, there's there's also that contemporary belief that like all philosophy is just post hoc rationalization of our own um behaviors biases etc 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 right mm -hmm. to me verbal behavior is still just behavior so like your thinking is no different from what you're physically doing but i do think that doing it physically Well, yes. that doesn't make sense because a lot of people are like, I am the comforter, I'm going to comfort, and they go into it already thinking that. Um, and so yeah, then I, the behavior matches. But here's the thing. Um, I think something still fundamentally had to change in order to spark that, right? Mm -hmm. So your behavior changes which fires your neuronal pathways in a different series than otherwise right mm -hmm. and just like we were talking about with hallucinogens beforehand that variation in neuronal pathways causes a variation in thinking Ooh, is having right? a baby like, like tripping well i don't know you know causally linked in in some capacity um 
right, induces that additional neuroplasticity with which to, in shorthand, rewire the pathways that you use to accomplish tasks, which alters the architecture and framework with which you can have thoughts. That makes perfect sense because the flood of oxytocin, like in order to build a new pathway, you have to send signals across that pathway. And the best way to ensure that a message gets across from one nerve to another is to send a lot of chemicals in between those nerves. And the odds that some of them get there um, are higher the more that there are. So having the flood of oxytocin when you first see your baby, when you first hold your baby, um, is going to create new pathways just because that works better than having only a little bit of oxytocin to create those pathways. So it would make perfect sense that your your brain is deliberately um, becoming more plastic. Um, that, is that the right word? Um, is uh, Your brain is deliberately flooding your neurons with this chemical so that these new pathways form um, so that you behave in this way uh, over time easier without even thinking, you know, um, which is when you see, you know, like bombs of multiple children juggling things that moms of one children are like, how is that possible? Like, I'm good. I got this like the back of my hand. Which is interesting because if we connect that to what we were talking about earlier with parents, especially mothers, receiving higher doses of oxytocin when they do skin-to-skin contact with their baby, Mm -hmm. right? Which, for all intents and purposes, most people view as healthy for the baby because it it, it creates secure attachment in, in... I, I'm assuming floods their brain with the right cocktail of neurochemicals with which to have them develop a healthy foundation with which to grow into. Um, but what if also the reason that happens and there's those heightened oxytocin levels in the parents, especially the mothers, is specifically to induce that neuroplasticity? Mm-hmm. It must be. <laughs> Because um, we are like biologically hardwired to do this parenting thing. That's the whole point. We are walking DNA that wants to be passed on and not go back into the carbons from which it came. It's Richard um, Dawkins' concept of the selfish gene. Uh, which is fine because that's how we get to do, you know, we've greatly overcomplicated this whole process of passing on our DNA. For some reason, there must have been, you know, other factors at work. If it was just about the DNA, we'd still be bacteria. Yeah, because reality is way weirder than just DNA. For real. So, like, I I see that, but probably not. Because if that was all it was, that's all it would have been. Um. So anyways, at the end of the day, though, that is, you know, our, that's what our DNA wants to do. It wants to be passed on. And we want to be passed on. Well, and, and that's particularly fascinating because... I forget where I read this. I really wish I could have found it in time again. Um, But there was a study done that looked at how people engaging in new experiences and new environments causes their bodies to synthesize 
proteins that it had never synthesized before in response to those new environments, right? What that suggests is we have way more genetic potential hidden within our genome than what our pruned, rigid, and hyper-specific maturation process has withered down to. Which is really cool because what that suggests is, tying all this back together, it very well might be the case that transmission or I should say transition from social role to social role to social role, right? Such as only child, oldest child, adult child, parent, literally changes you also at the molecular level too. As you engage and get placed in those new social roles, you're in a new social environment, which triggers the release of the creation and synthesis of new proteins to nourish your body in that, in the unique requirements or constraints of that new social environment. So you are physiologically a different person as well as metaphysically and ontologically a different person too. It makes sense. Because the whole, the only thing our DNA does is allow our body to make proteins from it, but very specifically the right proteins. Mm Because if even one of those are wrong, you're toast. Um, Not always, but most of the time, (laughs) you're toast. Which is why Um, it's cool that DNA, um, and and not to derail you, but this is just a, a quick aside, that the variation and mutations in DNA get caught and error corrected in the older sections of your DNA more often than in the newer sections because the older sections have proven to work. So you need less variation there. In the newer sections, you can have more variation because the threat of catastrophic failure is really low. Yeah, the like that's why like Down syndrome, uh, trisomy 21, is not as bad as trisomy three because the Mm -hmm. higher up you go which and there are babies born but like if you get genetic testing and they say trisomy three the odds of that baby getting like life-saving care pretty low like that's really sometimes just incompatible with life depending on how bad it is um versus a baby with down syndrome is always going to get that um life-sustaining care because not so bad those lower proteins we don't really care about um and you can have people with trisomy and sex chromosomes and there's almost no difference between a normal person um, and a person, I mm-hmm. use the word normal, an average person and a person with that type of DNA. Because um, the higher you go up, the more integral those proteins that that DNA makes tends to be. Um, so if you have deletions or additions there, it can cause issues. Um, so that's all. I've do not remember where I was going before. <laughs> no, I, I just, I, I find it. I find it particularly fascinating that. Because like, you know, we talk about social roles and, and anymore nowadays in the current socio-political environment, right? We, we, when we invoke social roles, the typical response in an audience is something like, it's really postmodern 
right? Social roles are jail cells that bound the potentiality of our being and they're by by definition oppressive, which there is some truth there. If we use the definition of oppressive, that means restricts and constrains, right? In that mm -hmm. case, reality is oppressive because you are flung into the world with a certain set of pre-existing conditions that you have no say and no control over that you just have to adhere to. Um, so there are, yeah, there are kernels of truth there. Um, but as a caveat to that, maybe not a complete overturning, but the baby in the bathwater there is if there is indeed this biological and physiological link between social roles, social environments, and I guess if you, depending on what scale of resolution you look at, we could all, we, we could say that causal link between biology and physiology and evolutionary success due to social roles, right? Mm -hmm. um, if most of the species gets placed in these social roles of abstract archetypes such as parenthood, adult, child, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, husband, wife, brother, right? All of these things. Um, and that causes the synthesis of a specific set of proteins, which induces behavioral and therefore thought process changes that on average, all other things equal induce a I don't, I don't know if I want to use the term better, but a more complete assimilation into that role, then A, those social roles aren't just social constructs imposed on us by cultural inheritance or anything like that. Rather, they are, that cultural inheritance is the result of a fundamental reality that has been intuited with valuations placed on top of. Mm -hmm. I think something that would be helpful for people who, well, I guess like going back, the only thing that you have to like do again to raise a child that is securely attached, probably going to be fine as like as far as their social skills and, you know, making friends and having like anger management, impulsivity, all of those things um, is to hold them <laughs> to your chest until they stop crying. And at there are times where that one need that needs to be met gets greatly complicated. And for a baby, it's very, very simple. We've been doing it. A monkey can do it. A dog can do it. Like, and, you know, it's not rocket science to take care of a baby. If it was, we would have gone extinct a long time ago. So the, yeah, I guess like strict adherence to something that is overly complicated and is like does include those very important things that has worked well I think the thing to remember is that it's easier 
than all of that. And as long as you're doing that one thing with the child, which is being a warm, comforting presence and providing for those needs as those needs arise. And then, you know, as a kid gets older, obviously that changes into a lot more complicated. Um, but just to get the kid there where they're able to start making their own decisions and that's where it starts to get complicated um, is not that hard. Um, Cause you'll see that a lot with like the kid needs a father figure, like for single moms and then for like uh, couples to like same sex couples who adopt a child or raise a child. Like they're good. They're going to be fine unless they're doing those, you know, missing those key things, which all the research shows are basically it. Um, yeah. So, um, caveat there. As long as they're like, so talking about the single mother thing, um, as long as there's still paternal involvement, studies have shown that adolescents and high schoolers that don't have consistent paternal involvement, which can be surrogated out to the new stepfather or something like that male role mm -hmm. model something um underperform on every measurable metric especially the young boys um they're i'm gonna butcher these numbers so if i'm wrong audience don't slay me for it 80% more likely to not finish high school, 75% or 70% more likely to engage in high-risk behavior, 60% more likely um, to have clinical depression and or um, have a criminal record. And I think a 50% higher chance of suicide attempt, but I'm even less certain about that number than the other ones. Um, you can you can find all of this in uh, Dr. Warren Farrell's book, The Boy Crisis. Um, he does a good job of charting all that. Um, in 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 short, his thesis is the boy crisis resides where the dads do not. Um, now, none of that is to say that there aren't great single mothers out there, and that it is totally possible. Right. But ask any one of those single mothers and every single one of them would tell you it is infinitely harder by yourself. <laughs> right. Um, now, to, it's not to meant back, to be done by one person. No, 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 no. It's it, in fact, all evidence shows that um, the two parent household is. Ideal in so far as there is an ideal for raising stable children now. Whether you know, the, the constitution of those two parents doesn't seem to matter much, right? Mom, mom, dad, dad, mom, dad doesn't, doesn't seem to matter. What does matter is that having both parents there um, and involved in some capacity allows modeling for the children to see effective compromise, conflict resolution, healthy interaction and play, teasing, things like that, right? So that way they can begin to map those social interactions and, and practice them. Because um, without those models to follow, they have no clue. And um, what tends to happen is, right, so like kids that don't 
engage in enough rough and tumble play when they're younger don't know how to properly assess play with their peers when they're older right so think back to any of your high school or early college classrooms where um, a student was getting teased because that's what people do and rather than teasing back or laughing it off they respond with just in disproportionate amount of aggression or amplitude or just have this overblown response right well th what is that that's a signal that that person wasn't socialized enough or around teasing and play enough to be able to to have a good enough barometer to know what's a healthy level of play and what's a threat right so their amygdala just fires and responds with fight or flight to the slightest thing even though it's not right this is a great my, quick side note about the rough and tumble play and the way that you allow your child to interact with the world is I think one of the worst things parents are doing is putting their baby daughters in gigantic bows and big poofy dresses and uncomfortable cute shoes um, and they're doing this to some baby boys too with like jackets and polos and button-ups and to make their baby look cute and then the baby cannot effectively play mm -hmm. <laughs> in those clothes so, you know, the t-shirt and the little stretchy pants, that's all oh, you yeah. need. Let them go. Like having the, like, cause you'll, these like little Instagram babies and then, you know, oh, that's expensive. You can't play in that. And then babies aren't supposed to wear shoes <laughs> at all. So um, this is just a caveat to really step it back with the baby fashion um, because it is detrimental to their development physically yeah, no, kids, and then socially. Kids need to be feral for a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, right, because that's how they learn to not be feral. Well, their bones and, are so squishy, you can't put them in jeans. Yeah. Well, and and there is that too, because rough and tumble play has been shown to, um, right. So, um, Yak Pangsept, a Hungarian psychologist, um. He did a lot of studies with rats and juvenile rats. We've talked about him before where uh, we talked about play and, and emergent morality in, in juvenile rats. But what he showed in other studies was that if you deprive juvenile rats of enough rough and tumble play, um, their bone density doesn't grow in to the degree that it needs to. And the juvenile males, if they were deprived enough of rough and tumble play and social interaction, they even showed signs of struggling to effectively go through courtship and mating mm -hmm. right it's it's integral how how do we how do we know how to react and interact with something external than us if we don't even understand how we react and interact to things right why do puppies you know why why is the the um old wives tale is it, you know if a puppy bites you you bite it back well so that way it knows that biting hurts right and it mm -hmm. learns to regulate its pressure so that way um it can actually embody the difference between a play bite and an aggression bite right mm -hmm. um now to to tie all of this back to what i was saying earlier um I wasn't trying to overcomplicate per se that 
new environments unlock genetic potential to synthesize new proteins to help us fulfill the requirements of that new environment social roles thing i think most of that is is like that's just what's actually happening behind the scenes mm -hmm. right i'm not trying to impose that framework on top of what what's happening um but i do think like not just with mothers and babies or, or parenthood or anything like that but I'd be willing to bet money that you could go around the world and you could poll people from every single civilization and ask them what makes a good brother, what makes a good sister, what makes a good mother, and there's going to be overlap and similarities. Mm -hmm. And I think it is that those overlaps and similarities that aren't obviously a lot of this, the way we value these roles and incentivize them has elements of social constructionism in it but i think where those things overlap are the fundamental they might just be evolutionary spandrels or they might be evolutionary features of those social roles right so like mm -hmm. If you went around the world and asked people from various different cultures, does a good brother hit you for no reason? Like, I'd be willing. Maybe. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes because they tease, but like, you know, does a good brother come in and break your arm because you were sitting in bed snoring too loudly? Right. Yeah, I think there we every go. single culture is going to say no, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That there are limits to that. Um, and that at least gives us a good starting point to better understand the commonalities of the human condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think something that is a really good example for our generation is how the social cue of a tattoo has changed over not even like 50 years going from this is a like degenerate prison rotting don't leave your clutch your purse if a person has tattoos yeah to Delivery now display, where delinquency yes like that was you know a huge social cue and if you were doing different things with your life if you had tattoos versus the way that that has changed in i would how long definitely 70 years i would say we went from that to where we are today where like a president could have tattoos and no one would really blink an eye unless you know there's certain tattoos um but the fact that they yeah, have tattoos the, would not be the issue no the the um unique nature and descriptions of those tattoos would get hyper politicized and weaponized against people but the fact that they had tattoos in general wouldn't be a stigma yeah um so I've, that's a great example of like the like specifics the details the icing that we put on the cake of the family structure is it highly variable and can go a thousand different ways and be a thousand different colors and shapes and your cake looks like a boat and my cake looks like a teapot and this cake looks like a normal birthday cake um and the outcomes can be incredibly similar and finding out what those key ingredients are 
And then if you add strawberry and you just stick with your regular vanilla and that's how you raise your family, they're going to come out (laughs) probably the same similar outcomes. They're going to be fine. And, you know, there are ways to absolutely destroy a child if you're interested in doing that. That's very, um, you know, there are ways to do it wrong, but there are a thousand ways to do it right. And I think people get caught up on a very specific mixture of ideals and the way that it looks and the way that it's done when you can rest easy. That (laughs) it's pretty simple. The base ingredients are going to be there and they're going to be the same regardless of how that family looks or operates or what, you know, and if they are doing it wrong, call CPS (laughs) Uh, because, you know, those are things that happen abuse, neglect, um, horrible things. Um, but for the most part, it's fine. So I guess like the point is the way that it looks is not a certain family looks from the outside is not what is going to make or break that child. The difference is going to be, are they not being abused? Are they not being neglected? And are their parents meeting those basic needs that they're supposed to? And most people manage that because we're supposed to do that. Yeah, we're we're evolved as generalists specifically to fulfill the requirements necessary to meet those base needs. Um, right, and that just <clears throat> that makes me think of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. where right. So that's the the it's like the food pyramid, but it's psychological yeah. needs, right? So at the very top, you have self-actualization that you can embody everything that you're trying to be and do in life. And then below that is, um, you know, intimate relationships and self-fulfillment. And then below that is social relationships and friendships and security. And then below that is like your base biological needs of, you know, food, um, bathroom usage, comfort and warmth and clothing and things like that and you can't address any of the higher tiers of that hierarchy without first having the base tiers met Mm -hmm. right so as long as you're addressing and helping that new individual meet their base needs until they grow up enough to be capable of meeting their own base needs themselves then they'll have a good opportunity to start working on those higher tiers and then grow along with it, right? I've got um, I've got a coworker who, unless it happens before, then his wife's going to get induced Wednesday mm-hmm. with their with their first child. Very and, exciting. And and I can see the new dad sweat all over him as he's because <laughs> you know like there's just we don't know. There's a lot that happens with women that is instinctual your body knows yeah the woman's body knows the baby's coming the man's body has no clue the baby's coming well and then like what to do so like a lot of that initial skin to skin how to nurture the baby feed the baby right it might be awkward at first as you figure out how it works uniquely for you but those instincts kick in due to hormone releases and oxytocin releases and, and, and all of that stuff um whereas new dads were just like i'll hold your hand while you push and doctor tell me what to do and like i don't know what to do with my hands right now right um Mm -hmm. and like 
I see it all over him and he's, he's a really good dude. So I've been coaching him and giving him, you know, what general advice I could over the past couple of months as we got into it. One of the things I kept saying to him is it's really easy to overthink your parenting. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to convince yourself you're doing it wrong. But regardless of what other people did and what other people do are doing or have done, is your baby happy? Is your baby healthy? Do they play? Are they going to the bathroom regularly? Are they sleeping somewhat regularly, right? So for the first couple of weeks, you know, every two hours, blah, blah, blah. I call it the pet rock phase, right? If they are, if they're happy and healthy, do what works for you to keep you sane. Mm-hmm. Co-sleep, don't co-sleep. Formula, breastfeed. Are they happy and healthy? That's yeah. for at least Screen the first time, six time, yep. sugar eating, all that. Yeah. Yep. For at least the first six months, that is what you use to determine whether you're doing it. Is that baby happy and healthy? And like that reflection, yeah. that need to reflect on what you're doing is a good sign as well. Like questioning, is this right? Is good. You should be doing that. Yeah. But no, don't we all you want, know, freak out about it. <laughs> we all want a handbook. <laughs> but there is no handbook. And even if it, even if it came with a handbook, like, hey, you're a new parent, here's the handbook, that handbook's only good for that child. Mm-hmm. right every single child <laughs> right. needs parent every single child needs parented differently um which is which is fascinating in and of itself that the order with which we enter the world kind of predetermines the boundaries of possibility for how we interact with the world so i had a student of mine yesterday ask me if I believe there were such things as alter egos. And it kind of stumped me for a minute. What does that mean? I, right. At first I was like, like, like Batman alter <laughs> ego. Right. Um, right. But, but no, he was, he was talking more like, like honestly, psychologically Um, in, in what prompted his thought is he was talking to one of his friends and his, his friend said that, he just feels like a better person when he's in the gym working out. And um. when he's outside of that role, he doesn't feel the same way. In part, my initial response to him was twofold. was firstly that, um, you know, we get endorphin releases with physical activity, right? That's why, that's why runner's high is a thing. I've never gotten it. I freaking despise running. These colors don't run. But... I do enjoy. It sounds games. fake. Yeah. I don't believe them, but I believe them. Yeah, um, but you know, I do. I do enjoy lifting for the same reason, um, or I guess similar reasons. So there's that. Like, not only do we have endorphin releases, we feel better about ourselves when we accomplish something. Right. That's that's exactly what we derive self-esteem and confidence from is accomplishing tasks even if that task is something as banal as picking up something heavy and putting it back down. Um, If you lift more this week than you did last week, you feel better about yourself psychologically. I would also suggest that entering a high school sucks. Yes. (laughs) Walking through the Uh, front door. So there's that too. Yeah. I remind my students all the time that high school sucks for everybody. So like, we'll get through it together Um, and be careful with your life choices because you could be like me and end up back in high school. (laughs) <laughs> um, it's fun um 
And then the second part that I told him was, um, to some very real degree, we all intuitively modify our behavior to fit in the social environments that we are embedded in. Which is good. It is good. It's a skill some people don't have. And it's also a skill that can be manipulated, right? It can be pathologized just like anything else. Um, but, you know, why, why is that the case? Well, because historically, right, you think 300,000 years ago were hunter-gatherers migrating across the African savannas and we camp for the night. The more nested you are in the social structure, the more literal safety you have. You're with the group. Right. If a pack of lions comes through to attack you, who gets eaten first? The people on the outskirts and the edges and the margins of the group. Right. Um, so that there is that evolutionary, evolutionarily driven neurochemical. Like that's why we get serotonin releases when we do something in front of people that makes us appear competent because we, right, we have that that neurochemical association of moving up the social hierarchy. But then I thought about it more yesterday evening and and i talked to him about it again today um because upon further reflection i had to go back and revisit and address the fact that the nature of his question presupposes that there is a, an original ego to have an altar of mm -hmm. and i don't think that's the case i think all we are are alter egos, right? And I don't mean in some sense of like schizophrenia or schizoid personality disorder or, or something like that. I mean in the sense of, and this is how I explained it to him, and I'm going to use you as an example here. Um, are you the same person today that you were yesterday? <laughs> the real answer to that is no. You're not. Your cells are different. You're at various different stages of metabolizing. It's it's a different timestamp, right? So in space time, you're a different thing, right? That's how we would quantify and, and identify like subatomic particles as their location in space time, right? That's how we can identify that they're different things, because um, mm -hmm. all of the other criteria for identifying and defining what they are are the same, right? A proton is a proton is a proton is a proton. I'm right. certain there's some physicists somewhere that just like rolled over in his grave because I'm certain that there's some differences that I'm uneducated to identify. But you get what I'm saying, right? Go back to chemistry class. What makes an oxygen molecule? The specific number of protons and electrons in a specific arrangement, right? So what differentiates one oxygen molecule from another oxygen oxygen molecule? Literally nothing except their timestamp in space-time, mm -hmm. right? Um, right. So with that in mind, because um, we, because that goes both ways. You're not going to be the same person tomorrow that you are today. More time has passed. You'll have new experiences. You'll be a different person, however minute. On top of that, every single person that you've had an interaction with in your life has a slightly different version of who you are in their psyche and in their experience and in their memory. And every single one of them is valid. Right. So who are you? Is there a singular entity that is Christy Bohan? And the answer to that question is no, there's not. There's, right, we can, 
if it was possible, we could compile all of the infinite instantiations of you and extract out the similarities and distill a quote unquote meta Christie. But that's not who you are. Right. I'm now crafting a behavioral definition of who are you. Right. And Um, it's convoluted. And that's cool in a couple different ways. Um, First of all, that well, what the first the first thing that suggests is in order to have a stable identity, you have to be in communication with that superordinate meta Christie as an organizer of all the various different instantiations of you, right? There has Mm -hmm. to be something with which to reduce that multiplicity down to a singularity in order to have an interaction with other people in the world, right? I think that also might be a response to there must be a singular me because changing is so hard there must be a pull back to who i am as a person if i wanted to suddenly become a runner that would be a struggle i would bounce back it feels like you rubber band back to that solid person um which i would imagine that is the first like that's not true because i can't change from who i was yesterday i'm i'm still in my bad habits i'm still you know, not a millionaire. I'm still like doing all, you know, drugs, whatever you want to change. I'm not exercising. I'm eating poorly. Um, I still shop at the same grocery store. Um, so how would you factor in these like habits and these like sort of core things that feel so hard to get away from with that definition or lack of definition? Well, and, and I think I think that's precisely my point, is that a lack of definition means a lowered ability to have a meaningful experience with reality. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean... I'm trying to peel back the layers of the onion here. Um, In one sense, what you're describing would be recognition of some of the majority conditioning that's happened to enough instantiations of the multiplicitous you that overlap significantly, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The second thing is, and this is the direction that I took this conversation with, with my student is, and I'm actually impressed and proud of him. He he kept up most of the way through this, Um, right? The, Contemporary cognitive scientists use the 4E consciousness model. That consciousness is enacted, extended, embodied, and embedded. 
And it's the combination of those four variables that allow us to have conscious interactions with reality. Right. So this is a camp. Right. Part of how I understand this as a thing is that I am able to interact with it. It's a can to drink from precisely because I can pick it up and drink from it. If I was unable to perform that action or interact with it in that way, is it still an object to be picked up and, and drunk from? Well, for me, no. Right. So it is my unique embodiment that predisposes meaning onto reality, right, for me to have that experience with. Um, additionally, right, we have to be embedded in an environment. We have to have something to interact with in order to have an in, in, in conscious interaction, right? We have to be embedded in an environment. Um, we, I have to enact motion with my embodied and embedded consciousness to have that interaction. And that interaction takes time. It's extended through time, right? That's that timestamp thing we were talking about earlier. Um, so what does that mean? Well, that means hypothetically, if there is any form of disembodied consciousness, right? So we're kind of talking about the mind-body split right now. Um mm -hmm. If there is any form of disembodied consciousness, it's not any, there's no way to have a meaningful interaction as that thing, whatever that thing might be, right? To, if, and this is, this is how I ex kind of explained it to my student, if we could dissolve away your five senses, and your embodiment and the structuralism that bounds and defines a reality around you that you're embedded in, what are we left with? Well, in some very real sense, even though there might be underlying consciousness there, we're left with nothing because there's no boundaries, there's no descriptions, there's no definitions with which to have a particular, to have an understanding of an experience to make meaning out of. Wow, this is what the cognitive psychologists are doing. Yes, um, uh, wow. the the primary one that I follow his name's John Verveke. He works in, in Toronto, um, and and that's that's his big thing is the recognizing consciousness as such, so that way we can positively affect the meaning crisis and get back to a more holistic existence, right? Holistic meaning not like some new age, drink this tea and all your problems go away type of Jonestown holistic thing, but holistic in the sense of like. You can't just take a pill to feel better. Right. Finding meaning in the totality of existence, right? And, and the thing he brings up a lot is, um, you know, Socrates was a warrior. He went to war. 
Plato was a wrestler. They weren't just fat old guys that were sitting back in a school talking about deep ideas. Part With of how they, and... yeah, part of how they had they these like thirty to think about. Well, part of how they had these ideas to think about was because they were embodied and used their body, and that's what informed them in, or that's what they used as information to understand the world. I have a follow-up question. Does this extend beyond the human animal? This whole theory, or is like the mind-body thing specifically a human phenomenon? Or like, does would this apply to my dog if I'm a cognitive psychologist? Because this is an area I do not dabble in. I imagine no, because that would be crazy. But maybe yes. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, okay. So we can play around with that idea for a little bit. Because as a behaviorist. I am very, very, very similar to my dog, biologically, genetically, behaviorally, because dogs are extremely social and so am I. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say, you know, no, I'm not particularly different from a dog. I'm not particularly different from a cow or a monkey or another human. And I imagine it's opposite. Where like each human is extremely different. Well, and see... I don't think we have an answer to that. I think all we have are hypotheses mm-hmm. and speculations, right? Because oh, yeah. in order to have an answer for that, we would have to be able to answer whether our brain generates consciousness or whether our brain is a conduit for consciousness. And the verdict is still out on that, mm-hmm. right? You look at the reductionist materialists that say your brain generates consciousness, then that's offering two fundamental axiomatic presuppositions in order to make that claim. You have to assume that consciousness exists. And then you Mm -hmm. have to assume that if you arrange matter in a specific type of way, boom, the light switch turns on and you can generate consciousness, which we haven't figured out how to do yet because those are two very big assumptions. We couldn't prove it if we did. Right. Um, How do I prove my dog is conscious? I can't. I assume it is. You have the other model that the brain is a conduit for consciousness. And, you know, the the Occam's razor approach, right? The most explanatory value with the least amount of assumptions suggests that that one is more correct because there's only one assumption you have to make there. And that is that consciousness exists. Um. Uh, Dr. Donald Hoffman from one of the prestigious California universities. I forget which one. It's not Berkeley. Maybe it's Irvine. I I don't know. He's at one of the UCs. Um, He has a team of mathematicians. He's a neurophysicist. And he has a team of mathematicians that has shown that they've developed mathematical proofs um, suggesting that given the assumption that consciousness exists, the math suggests that out of that we can generate reality. Right. So what what that suggests is, A, the underlying fabric of reality is not matter. 
its consciousness. What, you know, whatever that means. I don't have any more. Oh, okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that it is through that consciousness having interactions that we have experiences. Right. So it's like the laptop that I'm recording this on right now. Um, If I ripped the screen off of it, it's still functioning. Mm-hmm. there's still hardware the computer there. is computering right i just have no way to interact with it meaningfully in any capacity the interface mm-hmm. is gone right that's unplug your what, mouse now what right that's what our five senses in our brain does it okay. is that interface machine it is that it's not the operating system but it is the the screen on the computer that we use to have meaningful interactions with the operating system of reality All right. I wish I had more to add, but like the fundamental assumption that for me is that humans are not particularly special in any way on the planet Earth. Obviously, Mm -hmm. we've done well as a species, but also in the universe. And um, so like already I'm like, well, if, 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 you know, so um, I don't have much to add to that side of the conversation because in my mind, I am an animal who lives on planet earth and the way that I got here was because we are good at being animals and you know, so. Well, and that's all. I I, I do agree. Um, One of the big issues that I have with like science fiction and especially movies and stuff like that is um it's always really arrogant to assume that any extraterrestrial life, if there is any, would be anthropomorphic, mm-hmm. right? Because it's a completely different set of environmental conditions and evolution with which that biological being, if it, if we can even define it as biological, arose and existed, um, right? Just like you said, we're, we're not necessarily special in the sense that we are... Yeah sacred or anything like that right even Um, just looking at the way planet earth has turned out different like a jellyfish also evolved on this planet which is probably one of the farthest things you can get from a mammal it's like no bones all nervous system (laughs) no Um, so even the amount of variety on earth imagine well earth has a lot of very different environments but um so we have a lot of variety but imagine another planet you can't well and so like focuses exist do animals have consciousness um Mm -hmm. i mean i guess to some degree scientifically we would have to say yes because humans are animals whatever whatever consciousness is because it's still an incredible mystery that we have no way like it it's all of the science exploring consciousness is psychology and evolutionary biology and neurophysiology on steroids taking it to the theoretical realm um well this is where like for me it all evens out because the logical next question is if in like if a chicken is conscious how could i kill and eat a chicken 
but it's because I'm also an animal who's conscious. Like when you put everyone in that same box, then the way that we behave and interact with the world makes sense because if a chicken was conscious and that was something special, I probably wouldn't eat it. Um, so that's where I'm at. I mean, chickens, they know I'm eating them. They're afraid to die too, but I got to eat. If I had to place a random ass guess, I would guess that consciousness amongst the animal kingdom is a sliding scale. Mm-hmm. Right. That the jellyfish, which has no brain matter to have thoughts, at least insofar as we understand them, are going to be way lower on the consciousness scale than primates and simians like us that have the most complex architecture within our brains that's been seen ever, right? There's a lot going on there. Yeah. Another thing I would say, too, is going back to your eating chicken thing, example. Let's sound professional here. Going back to your chicken eating example. Um, the other day, I watched a video of a mother stork singling out the smallest chick from her clutch and flinging it out of her nest. Oh, no! <laughs> to increase the survival chance of the other chicks. Right. They always have more than they can care for, just in case. Right. And best case scenario is that baby stork gets eaten right away. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario, it falls, gets extreme physical trauma and dies of hemorrhaging and then gets eaten. Right, suffering for maybe even days before before it passes. And that reminded me that modern conceptions of safety and security are a recent human construction. Mm-hmm. They're not um, in the natural order of things. Right, life attacks are rare now. Right. But even then, um, you know, zoom out to the cosmic scale. Galaxies are going to collide. Stars are going to explode. There's like, that's what's supposed to happen in that constant churning and regeneration of, in reorganization of matter in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's ways that we can be humane about these things, right? And you would have to be a, and in fact, there are studies that show causal links between lower empathy with lower empathy and increased satisfaction with causing injuries in animals to psychopathic and serial killer style psychological palates. It is a straight line. Yes. Because um, animals are animals, and so are humans. And if you can mesh those, you're killing, you're a killing machine. Those direct interactions and experiences with reduced empathy 
copy and transmit extraordinarily well, unfortunately, to different domains. Um, but as such, I, I do think that we have, as a species, maybe that's too bold of a claim, as Western society have conditioned ourselves through our affluence to kind of be like the example that I gave earlier of that student in class that didn't have enough rough and tumble play and doesn't know how to accurately gauge and therefore manage threat versus play. Right? <laughs> through our affluence in Western society, we've padded so many walls and corners that every single instance of the inherent tragedy and trauma of life is seen as an exception, when in reality, that's the norm. And it is our stability and success and safety that is the exception. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> um, it would make sense that tragedy, well, there's like a biological and evolutionary reason why tragedy is aversive and it gets an emotional reaction. And that's because we want to avoid it which is good because if you didn't care that your boat was going to crash or something, you wouldn't fix the holes, um, you know, or you wouldn't make sure that your door was locked. If you were like, yeah, people get murdered every day. Um, so it's a good thing that people are like, no, this is bad because otherwise uh, we wouldn't be here. But also at the same time, there is that iron sharpens iron precept. Yes. It takes, and I guess this ties, ties us back into social roles, it takes that adversity of being in those new environments, having those new experiences with which to, forgive the crude terminology, but toughen you up to handle and be able to live a life in such a manner as to find meaning and value in life in spite of and despite that suffering and that inherent tragedy. Because we're all going to die. We're, we're mortal. We all have an expiration date. We're all going to bury parents. We're all going to lose friendships. We're all going to fail a class. These are going to happen. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And the only way to handle, or I should say, the operating under the assumption that existence is better than non-existence, that being is preferable to non-being. We can't stop those inherent tragedies. It's part, it, it's part of life. It's baked into the fabric of reality. What we can do is organize ourselves in such a way as to find meaning in the face of the inherent tragedy of life. Yeah, I think that does tie back to the infant baby and the mother or the father or whoever is there. Um, because the like attachment styles were observed through a experiment where the mother puts, and they did this with all mothers, the mother puts the baby down in a room that they've never been in before. They play a little bit and then the mother leaves and they look at what the child does. 
And mom leaving is scary. You don't want that. But the securely attached babies know mom's coming back. Like, this is not cool, but I'm not like worried for my very existence that mom left the room. Whereas insecurely attached babies are worried that that was it. This is it. I'm going to die here. Or, you know, the complete opposite where I don't even care if she comes back. Why would I care if she comes back? I'm good. Um, Which is like non-attached, which is also bad. Like the goal is that when something bad happens, there is that trust that it's going to be fine. That person is going to come back. This is going to work out. And having that acceptance that this happened, mom is gone. Um, and then the security that she's coming back. I'm cool. Which I think translates well to what you're talking about throughout the life where something bad happens. What do you do? It's not something that you can avoid, but there is a healthy way to react to those things. And there's many unhealthy ways to react to those things. Yeah, which I think is reflected if we if we want to tie all of this together with the pretty bow and, and then wrap up literally with the podcast and metaphorically with the topic and our pretty bows. Um with the genetic potential in the human genome and our ability to synthesize new proteins in response to environmental and, and social role changes that all other things equal if you're even remotely close to the quote-unquote right way to embody those experience and experiences and those changes then it provides you with the physical neurophysiological and therefore cognitive structures to process those things in the healthier versus unhealthy ways. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I, I see that alignment there now. And, and it would take someone way smarter than I that's done way more research in, in actual science into this to, to explain it to me. Can, I don't want to say convince me otherwise, but to, to give a strong contention Cool. All right.